You're tuned to The Conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Starting tomorrow, the military will begin drills to go over the process of refilling the pipes with fuel in the lower half of the Red Hill Underground bulk fuel storage facility. The Navy calls this process repacking the pipes. Then next month, it will conduct an exercise that will repack the upper half of the pipe system. According to Brigadier General Michelle Link, uh, Deputy Commander of the Joint Task Force Red Hill, charged with the defueling, that phase will be the most risky part of the operation. Link lays out the plan to respond to the risks of a leak or a fire during the actual draining of the tanks. She also addresses the opportunity for the public to send comments about the plan under what's known as the NEPA review process under the National Environmental Policy Act. Here's Link. So tomorrow's drill will be the most likely type of relief. So when we speak in terms of visualizing what could happen or understanding what could happen within the facility. I challenged the team to look at both scenarios. We are clearly not going to be able to plan for everything or things that are not likely to occur or have extremely low probability of occurring. The one that we will kick off tomorrow is the most likely release. So if there were to be a failure in a repair or some sort of precipitating event that would cause a leak, where would it have the greatest probability of occurring? And then developing response plans around that likelihood. So tomorrow's drill is focused on a repacking scenario where we are moving fuel from the upper tank farm into the pipes within the facility and stimulating that type of relief so that we can exercise the response drills and plans that we have developed over the last several months through the interagency process and go through rehearsal and lessons learned in that regard. And is that drill going to be just a one-day drill? Will it be, you know, over several weeks? Yeah, so the drill itself will last for a day. There are several weeks' worth of work that lead up to the execution of a drill. That includes the training requirements for the individuals that are participating. It includes what we call tabletop exercises, where we walk through things basically in a paper format, and it's a dry run or a rehearsal. And then the actual coordination with all of the interagency partners. There is preparatory work that's being done today in training with Department of Health currently. And then the actual facilitation of the response drill will go for the entire day tomorrow. Once that response drill is complete, Any lessons learned will be captured. There is a full assessment upon uh, completion of the drill, and those lessons are then incorporated and updated into the planning documents and the overall response plan. This is one of seven total that we are completing. The next one will occur on July 13th. Uh, So this one is, is a smaller focus, and then we will change focus on several of the drills that are upcoming. So there are multiple drill exercises that we will actually go through. And the exercise in July, I understand that is the one that maybe has more risk, that part of the process. Correct. Yes, there are two parts to the one that is upcoming in July. One is the most likely, so if there were to be a release, the most likely release of fuel or a leak, there are three primary locations in the facility So this one would address a most likely release in the tank gallery where the tanks themselves are located. Then it would be a layered response drill that would follow on by way of volume, right? So if there were a most dangerous release, that is the worst case scenario. Although it has an extremely low probability, we are still planning for that worst case to ensure that we have a layered approach. And in that that drill, it's a visualization and movement of the fuel and all of the possible places where it could go, where it would permeate, and how we protect both the aquifer and the environment in consideration of, you know, elevation and movement from the top of the tank gallery all the way down to here. And this is potentially dangerous for the people that will be in the tunnel watching to make sure that everything is buttoned down and we're moving as planned, as as you practice in these drills. What planning is going on 
to deal with, let's say, the fire hazard. I understand that you will be bringing in a contingent of people to begin training as fire watchers. Yes. So the fire suppression plan is a little bit different than the spill response plan, although very important and extremely critical. As you may know, there are three AFFS systems within the facility. The one at the tanks is the one that you're talking about that is currently disabled. The other two are working. There are no other alternatives, and that's for the upper tank farm and the underground pump house, but that is not near the aquifer. To address the situation where the tanks are disabled, we have a fire suppression plan that has been coordinated, again, with the interagency partners with Fed Fire, as well as the regulators, and that does consist of a fire watch team. That intent is for them to be the initial response to get the follow-on responders on site. We also have the water sprinkler systems that are still active in the tank gallery. So again, that is a layered response of initial fire watch, followed by the, the first responders, and as well commensurate with the water. The manning of those resources is currently in progress. Those individuals have been identified and they are anticipated to arrive in the first part of July. They will go through a month-long training and certification process here, uh, again, in conjunction with Fed Fire and the other interagency partners. And then we will have a culminating fire suppression exercise in August. And that will be the final drill that we will execute prior to commencement of defueling in October. And the special team of fire watchers, are they active duty? I mean, I learned at the open house that there will be some reservists tapped and some maybe National Guard? Correct. So it will be a mix of all three components, both active duty, reserve, and National Guard. At least within the Army, the preponderance of the firefighters in the traditional Army occupational skill series belong to the reserve and the National Guard. So it's very easy to reach out to them to come up with resourcing solutions, but it really is going to be a joint build capability where we can leverage those resources across all of the services and all of the the components of active duty, reserve, and National Guard where they have that capacity. And will any of these uh, people be brought in from abroad, or are they all pretty much here, boots on the ground? Yeah, so it's unlikely that they will all be in Hawaii. That would be a preference just because it's easier by way of location and access, but I think that's an unrealistic expectation given the amount of people that we require to come in in support of this mission. So we do expect that they will come from the mainland and as well anybody that we can pull in from Hawaii in support of this at the same time. You know, there is obviously great concern about the safety for everyone that will be working on this defueling process. And I'm told the tunnels, the access between adits can be a couple of miles, I think, at one juncture, or about, you know, two-thirds of a mile. So if that tunnel becomes a pipeline of fuel, which you hope does not happen, the ability for the workers in there to get out safely, I mean, that's a concern. Correct. And we have put those considerations into the planning for this. And so when we worked with the Navy facility fire engineers and as well with Fed Fire, we looked through placement and creating safe zones for those individuals and those teams, as well as the strategic placement of the dry chemical canisters that will be located to mirror where we would have had those dispersion systems for the AFFS system. The response of the individuals and the safety of the individuals on that fire watch team is first and foremost our concern to ensure that they are safe. So that ranges from training, the personal protective equipment, and as well the placement of equipment within the facility and the safe zone so that they have a means of egress. The intent is not to keep them there in place to fight a fire. The intent is to use them as an initial response within a very brief time frame so that they're able to rove and pull back or move out of the facility so that the first responders can then take over and execute in accordance with their training. And, you know, we are in a particularly busy time. It's pretty intense as far as the level of activity. This week you just started the tank tightness test. I understand that there's also an app. People can get access to a dashboard just to kind of see our progress. 
on the defueling process and more opportunity for the public to get involved and ask questions? So there is a lot still going on in order to meet the accelerated timeline. We really are very focused every single day. The tank tightness testing was previously an annual requirement with the signed consent order, the one that was recently signed by the Navy, CLA, and the EPA is now a semi-annual requirement. Tank tightness testing is a method of ensuring the integrity of the tanks and to verify that they are not leaking. I want to just assure you know, the audience that the fuel is not moving. When we do tank tightness testing, it is really a static test to check the depths over a period of days of the fuel that exists in the tank. There is no fuel moving between tanks to change fluid levels, and it's tested to an established standard, industry standard, that we have to comply with in accordance with Department of Health to meet that requirement. So that is ongoing. It will take approximately seven weeks to complete that testing, and that includes the primary tanks, all tanks that have fuel, and then the surge tanks as well. So that is a standard routine process, and we're just undergoing that currently. Additionally, as you mentioned, the app, we have recently rolled out an application. It is currently available on Apple. The Android app is in progress. But this allows us another means to engage with the community. It provides information at their fingertips, includes such things as a photo library, videos, any helpful links outside of defueling, news stories, provides some overview about who we are. It also provides another means to access the defueling dashboard and calendar of upcoming events. When we begin the NEPA public comment period, it will also provide a link to the environmental assessment and the ability for anybody who would like to submit a public comment, it will provide that link as well so that they can do that and and have a simplicity at their hands on the phone if that's something that they're more comfortable with. Right, so it's a real effort to try and provide information about this very complicated and dangerous process, but at least the public will get a chance to understand what's going on. Yes, we want to be as transparent as we can and provide information in real time. This allows us to reach more broadly. You know, some people aren't fans of, of using the computer or maybe have access to Internet. We, we understand and appreciate that with today's technology and individual preferences, you know, applications and the ease of, of doing something on your phone seems to be a, a preferred means of communication. So I appreciate the opportunity to continue to provide that context and uh, always appreciate talking to you. So thank right. you very much for well, your time. Well, thank you again, General. Take care. That was U.S. Army Brigadier General Michelle Link, an engineer who was brought in uh, to be deputy commander on the Joint Task Force Red Hill, whose mission it is to drain 100 million gallons of fuel in the underground tanks. Support for HPR comes from Costco Air Conditioning and Refrigeration, serving Hawaii since 1961, featuring Daikin Air Conditioning Systems. Listing of contractors who install Daikin products at CostcoHawaii.com. I'm Marco Werman. Russia's Army for Hire is desperate for soldiers, and they're posting recruitment videos with a pretty low bar for entry. At this point, they need to hire as many people as possible. They're trying to hire anyone who is able to hold a gun. Russia's Wagner Group and their recruitment efforts next time on The World. Beginning this afternoon at 1. Support for HPR comes from Broadway in Hawaii, presenting the national touring production of Andrew Lloyd Webber's musical Cats. Opens this Tuesday, June 13th at the Blaisdell Concert Hall. Tickets at broadwayinhawaii.com.
The search for new head of the Agribusiness Development Corporation is the subject of today's reality check. Honolulu Civil Beat reporter Thomas Heaton is on with us today. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Yes, and you know we are at a juncture with this uh, entity because uh, the executive director James Nakatani uh, passed away uh, back in April. Yes, so um, Nakatani, who led the um, state-owned corporation for about a decade, uh, passed away in April, of course, um, and he, given he had uh, spent a decade leading the uh, operation and really kind of was the engine that ran it, um, it's it's raising some questions over who's going to take up the helm and who's going to lead this uh, corporation forward as you know uh, we're now in a pretty important stage at the um, in the legislature uh, millions of dollars have been appropriated to the ADC for several projects um, one of which including the uh, state acquisition of the Wahiwa Dam and irrigation system there's a 20 million dollar uh, price tag on that a three million dollar small agri- small animal slaughterhouse in Kapolei and a 10 million dollar appropriation for a food and product innovation network but of course um, the ADC has plenty to gain when it comes to public trust Um, the agency has been subject to audits and investigations over the past couple of years and many concerns have been raised about it and of course part of this is um, the late Jimmy Nakatani who has said he was you know keeping everything in his head in his head when asked about um, record keeping asked about evidence of fulfilling the statutory purpose of agribusiness development corporation which of course was to enliven the agricultural economy uh, after the big five um, of the plantation era exited Hawaii and Jimmy Nakatani you know was the former head of the uh, Department of Agriculture uh, and, and so, you know, he had a lot of uh, history in this area. Uh, but like I said, he was uh, criticized during those audits. And so with his sudden death, you wonder then going forward, what happens? Yes, exactly. And um, so the hiring process has started on Monday. The ADC Board of Directors posted the job opening on the State Careers website. That will be open until June 26. Um, and while we don't know who is in the hiring pool, um, we know that there's one person in it, and that happens to be the ADC's Board of Directors, um, Chair Frederick Lau. So Fred Lau was chair until May 25, just about a month after Jimmy passed away, um, and he stepped down indicating that he was going to vie for the role. Um, so in in the minutes of these meetings... Uh, Mr. Lau has indicated, you know, he had a close relationship with Nakatani. They'd met on a weekly basis, talking for hours about uh, the future and of agriculture and the direction of ADC. So, um, of course, Lau is a seasoned Oahu farmer. He and his family own and run Mari's Garden in central Oahu. So, that's our first indication of what kind of candidates we'll be looking at and. We're still wondering, is this going to be a continuation of the status quo or is there really going to be a shake-up and will the ADC kind of address some of those reforms that a lot of legislators and the public are really looking for? And your story mentions how the State Ethics Commission stepped in to uh, force the restart of the hiring process just to make sure it's all above board. Yes, so... um, of course, with uh, Laos standing down from his chair role, um, he had already actually set up the hiring committee and set up the processes for hiring, but um, the State Ethics Commission stood 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 in on the meeting and uh, actually kind of gave a recommendation that, you know, we need to reconstitute this hiring committee, we need to rejig our process, because, of course, public trust is a concern and... We need to be transparent. So it it looks as though there's pressure on the ADC to really kind of address some of these um, reforms. Yeah, well, you know, transparency obviously is a a big concern, uh, but it'd be interesting to see then how this plays out. But thank you so much, Thomas. Absolutely. Thank you, Catherine. That was reporter Thomas Heaton with today's Reality Check. To read his story, visit (laughs) civilbeat.org.
SAG-AFTRA is a union that represents uh, more than 160,000 actors and media professionals in the film industry. There are more than 1,400 members here in Hawaii. The union voted this week to authorize a strike if a new labor deal can't be worked out with Hollywood Studios. And this comes as nearly 12,000 Writers Guild of America members enter week six of their strike. that has brought many productions around the country to a halt. Hawaii screenwriters held a rally this week in Waikiki in support of that strike. Aaron Kandel, who co-wrote the Disney film Moana, was among those at the event. HPR reporter Casey Harlow got a chance to talk with Kandel about what they're fighting for. Any show or movie that you watch in any theater, on any TV, on any streaming platform was written by a member of the WGA, the Writers Guild of America. Uh, there's 11,500 writers in the guild, and it's writers from people you would know, like a J.J. Abrams, a giant showrunner, or Matt, who's here, who's the showrunner of NCIS Hawaii, down to the blue-collar, everyday, struggling, working screenwriters who are creating content in the TV shows. They're all in the guild. They're all being squeezed equally and unsustainably to make it almost impossible now to write as a profession that supports a family, kids, a mortgage, just like the very basic, reasonable living wages. So is there a minimum wage or a basic minimum floor for when you work on a TV show or if you wrote something? There's a basic minimum floor of like what is considered living wages for writers to essentially have a middle class of writers who aren't making the like Shonda Rhimes multi-million fortunes, but are making enough to be like you would imagine a teacher would make, right? So that you can do what you love, tell the stories that hopefully bring audiences together and make you feel something, but you can also support a family and pay rent, if not mortgage. And that has been more and more and more reduced, even as streaming has become bigger. And those companies that produce that content and fund that content are having record profits, but we've had the biggest record reduction in writer income in 35 years. So it's become this round is more of an existential crisis than ever. In 2007, 15 years ago, a lot of that strike was about the emerging streaming market of the internet that at the time, the same studios we're negotiating now said, we don't even want to talk about that. There's nothing to talk about because there's no business model for content on the internet. There's only YouTube and that's not really a thing yet. If we hadn't struck then and won that, all the shows on Apple TV and Netflix and Amazon and Hulu and everywhere that most people are now watching shows, writers wouldn't have been paid upfront or back end for any of that. There would have been no protections. And so the same thing is happening now with the advent of streaming wars and AI and the entire business model has changed from what was traditionally studio-driven and network television to everything's online, on demand, all the time. And every time an audience clicks and watches something, that used to benefit everybody equally across the board, and now writers aren't seeing even pennies of that. So it's just asking for living, reasonable wages. So looking at the streaming wars, you know, we're so used to being able to binge whole seasons now. You know, I'm even guilty of watching four, five, six, 20 episodes all in one sitting. So obviously the demand is there, but does that add a lot of pressure on you as a writer to not only make a great product, but also meet those tight time schedules? Because, you know, we're seeing shows immediately drop and then getting picked up for another season. It's a constricting and collapsing of pressure and deadlines on writers and workers everywhere across the board, whether you're an Amazon factory worker and you get docked for every minute that's outside of your 15-minute bathroom break, they are clocking and docking. That's how they're treating workers everywhere. So why should you care? Why should writers matter? Is because we're kind of the tip of an iceberg that what we write on the page turns into millions of dollars that are generated on a production of truck drivers and caterers and makeup artists and actors. And if we used to be able to write 
on a network show like Friends, for example, you'd have 22 episodes, a full year of guaranteed writing where you'd be getting paid for every episode you're writing and for every time it was streamed and syndicated and resold to a Netflix in a giant deal, a writer would benefit from that. Nowadays, you've got an 8 to 10 episode season that they're having a showrunner write every episode with maybe one or two writers that get paid one episode that is less than a hotel worker or a construction worker on a normal job and you can't sustain your life or career doing that you can't even make a monthly rent while you're writing on a show like imagine if your boss asked you to work for 60 hour weeks for six months for zero pay that's what happened personally to me on my last apple feature as an established writer it's called a producer's pass and it's now the norm is your guaranteed contractual writing step is now being asked to do that for free and because everybody is being pressured and constricted, you feel like you have to say yes, but then you can't make ends meet. And so that's why the writers are striking, because it feels like things are turning into a gig economy. We're going the way of like print journalism. So there's a lot happening here in, at home, a lot of TV shows and films being produced here. Can you describe the landscape or ecosystem here in the islands and the people who work in production? and why a writer's strike eventually impacts them. Yeah, it affects the whole economy locally when you have both positively and negatively. When you have productions come in that bring, and usually there's anywhere from three to six or seven productions at any given time throughout the islands, and those productions bring in millions and millions of dollars and hundreds and hundreds of jobs. And when those stop, as this Writers Guild has already affected, there's currently only one production filming and things like NCIS Hawaii, which provides hundreds of jobs, is on hold because they can't write episodes, so there's nothing to shoot. And so that gets put on hold indefinitely. Shows like the Apple show Chief of War, which is Jason Momoa's authentic, wanting to make it as authentic to Hawaii as possible, in Olelo Hawaiian, with Hawaiian actors. And because of cost-cutting measures, they had to go film the majority of that show in New Zealand. And so there's not only jobs and economic value lost, there's cultural representation and opportunities for local talent, local storytellers, actors, uh, upcoming film students and set PAs and set and wardrobe and all of those people that would have had opportunities to learn on production and elevate themselves to the next tier and next level to bring more authentic Hawaiian storytelling here is being lost in a very real and tangible way. And the more we can not only bring the world to Hawaii through the stories that are filmed here, but tell stories that are of this place that bring Hawaii to the world, that I think is important for local storytellers, people like me especially who are born and raised and want to share the values and the cultural beauty of this place in a broader way. That was Hawaii-born screenwriter, uh, screenwriter Aaron Kendall talking with HBR's Casey Harlow about the Hollywood writer's strike currently in its six-week. State Commissioner, Film Commissioner Donnie Dawson says so far she's not aware that Hawaii productions have been affected by the writer's strike. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Mobi, a Hawaii wireless company since 2005, featuring a locally-based customer care team committed to problem-solving and personal service for each client. Learn more at Mobi.com. I'm Bert Lum. Today on Bite Mart Cafe, we catch up with the Honolulu Department of Emergency Management to unpack NOAA's hurricane predictions. We'll also hear from the city's Office of Climate Change to better understand the shift from La Nina to El Nino. That's today at 6.30 p.m. on Bite Marks Cafe. Support for HPR comes from the Hawaii Community Foundation, committed to an equitable and thriving Hawaii, supporting initiatives such as affordable housing, fresh water, and the healthy development of young children. HawaiiCommunityFoundation.org.
Maui's Rail Dom is one of 10 home chefs in the lineup for season two of the PBS series The Great American Recipe. Take a listen to this trailer. This recipe has been in my family's family for generations. That's perfect. I'm excited to see what those secrets may be. I think that's a really great way to show who you are. Your dad would be proud because this is delicious. Welcome back to The Great American Recipe. Lum is a nurse practitioner by trade, but she shares her love for cooking and her favorite Hawaiian recipes on her website. There you can find nearly 300 recipes of food familiar to the local palate and dishes that give a nod to the many different cultures that make up our island's culinary heritage. The conversation Stephanie Hahn talked with Lum, and she shared the wisdom of her home kitchen. How did you come to be on this PBS show? the casting agent reached out to me on Instagram. And at first I was like, is this a scam? (laughs) Kind of like me? Why me? Where did you find me? And then after some questions and, you know, getting their qualifications, like, oh, okay, this is actually something. And met with the casting producers and went through a few rounds of interviews and all these things. And lo and behold, ended up on there. And I was like, kind of hesitant at first. I was like, oh man, I don't even know what to expect. This is out of my realm, you know, but I really wanted to put Hawaii food on the map and and educate people, you know, that putting pineapple on your pizza doesn't make it Hawaiian. But (laughs) hey, let's talk about Hawaiian food and local food. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So what prompted you to learn to cook growing up? So my mom's a teacher and she liked to bake nothing fancy, totally like home baker, but she would always make treats for me to take to school for like holidays like Christmas Thanksgiving and things like that so I love to help baking was always kind of our thing and then of course in Hawaii everybody does potlucks right so we were always the family that kind of did desserts for parties um so I felt really comfortable doing that but a little secret I was a picky eater as a kid growing up and so I knew I wanted kids and I didn't want my kids to be picky eaters like myself. So I kind of taught myself how to do more of the savory types of foods because I figured if I could make it and I could serve it to them, it would expand their palate and get them more interested, hopefully, in liking a variety of foods. And that's kind of what sparked all of this cooking and baking. We have here in Hawaii a local flavor, and everyone who's here really understands this. You made loco moco, which people do think of as a type of comfort food here. And what do you think the qualities are? Comfort foods here in Hawaii is definitely salty, but it does have a touch of sweet oftentimes. You know, like when we do like shoyu chicken, you know, it's shoyu and sugar based into that. So definitely salt is key in even traditional Hawaiian foods, but local foods and bringing that blend together. I think it's a little bit of sweet and salty. And I was curious, you had mentioned vegetables and your struggle with vegetable Mm -hmm. eating when you were younger. Do you have any plans to advocate using local types of vegetables or would you be making something potentially on the show vegetables that are more main available on the mainland? So I've definitely come a long way in the picky eating realm, but <laughs> I do have a long way <laughs> but I do have a long way to go. I'll be the first person to tell that. By day I'm a nurse practitioner, so I'm constantly talking to patients about their diet and things that they can work on to better, you know, improve their health. And I'll admit sometimes it's do as I say, not as I do. I am working on it myself definitely. And I'm trying to incorporate it for my kids, you know. I think that's part of why I was picky. It wasn't something, you know, you hear about as a kid, like you were forced to sit at the dinner table and eat all your food until you ate all your vegetables and then you could go. Like that wasn't really like that at home. And my mom is kind of a picky eater herself too. I think think that's kind of where it stemmed from. My dad grew up eating whatever and avid fisherman, ocean goer, so I'm comfortable with that. So vegetables were a little bit different. So I'm trying definitely to incorporate that. On the show, it's a lot of local and Hawaiian foods bringing that to the forefront and really to just educate the mainland about what Hawaii food or local or Hawaiian food truly is. 
Do your own kids, are you teaching them how to cook like you were learning to cook with your mom? Yes, my kids, my daughter, um, she loves being in the kitchen and is always wanting to help. And But as soon as I turn the camera on, she's shy and she'll just kind of like <laughs> freeze. Whereas my son, he's totally Mr. Aloha. He'll talk to anybody and do anything. And cooking for him, kind of hit or miss. You know, sometimes he's all about it. Sometimes he'd rather go play outside and run around. But I try to get them in the kitchen as much as I can. I feel like cooking has kind of become a lost skill. You know, back in the day, everybody, you know, most people could cook. Most people could change their oil and sew and change a tire and things like that. And those kinds of things nowadays, not every kid or not every person knows how to do that. So I really want to get my kids to at least be able to learn how to cook. One, saves a lot of money eating at home. It gives you the opportunity and the freedoms to eat what you want and make what you want but you can also control your health that way you know a lot of the things that cause or make conditions worse like high blood pressure diabetes cholesterol that can totally be controlled by diet and if people were able to be able to cook and control those things that would really help so I definitely want to be able to teach them you know to be self-sufficient and be able to cook are there any particular health angles uh, that you incorporate when you are designing your recipes or that you suggest to people? Most of the recipes that I have listed on my website are basic local recipes. And what I found when I first started doing it was there wasn't a lot of information. And for me, it was sharing the knowledge with people, you know, simple things like rice cake. You know, you couldn't find a recipe anywhere about how to make rice cake. And that's something we used to make a lot. So I wanted to share it. So it wasn't really catered to specific dietary, you know, not necessarily vegan or keto or gluten-free or, you know, any of those. Mainly now, it's just to get the the name out there, get, get people knowing that, hey, I can look this up and I can make this. And it's definitely something that I'm thinking about doing in the future, though, is, you know, taking these classic local recipes and making them healthier. You know, I mean, sometimes you can't make something completely healthy and it still really tastes good and and have the heart and the soul and the the mindset of what truly local food is. Um, But I'd like to give people the opportunity like you know maybe we can air fry chicken katsu which works Mm -hmm. really great you can air fry it you know and save some of that on the oil cut back on the salt maybe use low sodium shoyu so simple stuff that the everyday person can do that won't necessarily change their diet completely by going like completely vegan or something like that more attainable for people and do you think some of this might be down to portion size Oh, absolutely. That plays a big role. A lot of times my my patients, especially my diabetic patients, will come in and they'll be like, you know, I'm telling them, hey, you you know, watch your sugar. And they're like, yeah, but I made your dessert. And I said, yeah, but you don't have to eat the whole pan. You can have (laughs) one piece, you know, everything in moderation. Absolutely. Portion size plays, plays a big role in a lot of things. You don't have to completely cut everything out. Right. What are a few favorite dishes that you like to eat? that you have from memory that maybe have a little story attached? Yeah, it's always so hard to pick favorite foods. I feel like it's picking a favorite child. But Mm. if I had to (laughs) pick my absolute favorite, I would say savory would definitely be hamburger steak, ground beef patty, homemade brown gravy, white rice. Like, that's my (laughs) go-to. Anybody asks. <laughs> yeah, you can put the egg on it and make it a locomoco, but regular hamburger steak, like I'm all about it. If some place has it, usually if I don't eat out very often, but if I do, if some place has it, that's probably my go to pick as well. And then as far as baking, one of the big things we've made all the time were caramel cookies. There's no caramel in it, but it's called caramel cookies. And it was something fun that we always did, especially for Christmas. Um the dough was well enough that you could roll it and cut shapes so every year we would cut out shapes and as and when we were younger we would decorate them with you know like food coloring just dip like a q-tip on it and you can decorate it like that sprinkles and all these things so that was i I think the fondest memory the smells of baking in the holidays that just 
pours all those memories in. But that's probably my ultimate favorite dessert and memory tied together. That sounds delicious and a ni- like a <laughs> nice memory. Any advice you can give to a, a home cook out there? Absolutely. So I always tell people, look, I'm not a chef. I'm just a mom that likes to cook. And if I can do it, you can do it too. It takes a little bit of planning, but it'll save you money. It'll save you time. And it it's really, it's so fulfilling and it makes you feel really good when you cook something and you give it to somebody and they enjoy it and you see their face light up. Like that just means the world to me, you know? So I'd say do it, try. If you If you think you can't, you won't know unless you try. And honestly, a lot of the recipes that I share are super easy, so you can do it. And that was Maui's Real Lum, talking with H. Bear Stephanie Hahn. Lum will be one of the home chefs competing on season two of the PBS series, The Great American Recipe. The first episode airs on June 19th. And if you want to try one of Lum's recipes, check out our link on the conversation page of our website later today. This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio, and here's a bird you're likely already familiar with, the house sparrow. And for good reason, house sparrows are one of the most common wild birds in the world. We've got their song thanks to the Macaulay Library at the Cornell Laboratory of Ornithology. Here's University of Hawaii Hilo Professor Patrick Hart with your Manu Minute. House sparrows are one of those birds that always seems to be around, but they don't often get noticed. The males have rufous and black streaks on their backs, with a very noticeable black bib on a grayish breast. The females are mostly light brown. House sparrows are originally from Africa, and recent evidence has shown that they migrated with humans out of Africa, then into Europe and throughout the world. As their name suggests, they're mostly found around human habitations, where they love to build nests in the eaves or other covered areas of buildings. They've been considered both major pests due to their love of many of the grains that people grow, and also major consumers of many of the insect pests that farmers try to control. House sparrows seem to have been intentionally introduced to Hawaii in the mid-1800s and are now very common wherever people live throughout the islands. If you're having lunch in a city or park and a small brown bird comes begging for food, there's a good chance it's a house sparrow, especially if it has a song that sounds like this. A very recent study that came out in the journal PNAS estimates that there's about 50 billion birds in the world, and that the most abundant of all is our little friend the house sparrow, at an estimated population size of about 1.5 billion. Because of their habit of living around people, these birds pose little to no threat to any of our much more rare native bird species. For Hawaii Public Radio, this is Patrick Hart from the UH Hilo Department of Biology. Support for Manu Minute comes from Ken and Patty Kupchak for the Friends of Hakalau Forest National Wildlife Refuge, committed to helping preserve, protect, and restore the biological diversity of Hawaii Island. Friendsofhakalauforest.org. The point of Brexit was to free the UK economy from the European Union's regulatory shackles. But the UK has taken probably a more, even more aggressive line kind of more aggressive anti-tech line um, than even the European Union. I'm Kimberly Adams. Brexit promises versus reality. That's next time on Marketplace. Beginning this evening at 6, following All Things Considered. Support for HPR comes from the National Kidney Foundation of Hawaii, accepting household items and clothing donations for its Kidney Clothes Program, helping kidney disease patients in Hawaii. Pickup available at kfhawaii.org.
Previously on The Conversation, we featured stories about two big island companies who were skilling up to produce limu, or seaweed, to help with greenhouse gas emissions. Turns out, a type of Hawaii algae helps to cut methane in cows and goats. Today, HBR reporter Kuvei Ishi joins us to talk about a recent visit to a dairy farm. Hi. Good morning, Catherine. Limu kohu is that red algae long used in the islands as a staple condiment of the native Hawaiian diet, but has also, as you mentioned, uh, may also be a valuable tool in fighting global warming. So a recent study of limu kohu fed goats on a big island farm has been shown to reduce the amount of methane that livestock emit by at least 70%, which is uh, sort of groundbreaking science for those who have been researching uh, this particular limu. Carl McKinney, head of the Hawaii Island Goat Dairy Farm in Ahualoa on Hawaii Island, where the experiment took place, says he just started adding a bit of limu kohu to the feed about several months ago. We add it to our feed. It's probably less than a gram per goat that we add to the feed. So we, when we mix up um, our corn and oats and barley into the goat chow, we mix in some of this brominata, a very small amount. The goats eat like they used to. They don't seem to have noticed any difference in it. Uh, they're always hungry. <laughs> that brominata is uh, the compound or the... Um a component in the limukohu that actually uh, reduces the methane. And Joan Salwin, president and co-founder of Blue Ocean Barns, has been growing limukohu for this particular purpose to figure out uh, how businesses that use dairy and beef products can actually uh, take emissions out of their supply chains. Uh, so D- Salwin's explaining sort of how the science behind the brominata in the limukohu works. So we have found that limukohu is a very unique seaweed and a very unique actual uh, organism in this world because it has the ability, as it's growing, to hold in its plant cells bioactive ingredients that almost act like bino or gasex for cows because when it gets digested, the oils from within the limukohu interact with, with compounds that would be making methane gas and instead just halts that chemical reaction so that the the cow is able to or the goat is able to or a sheep is able to eat its food without creating methane gas which is a very natural byproduct of eating fibrous food. So Sowen says, you know, as far as she knows, Limukohu had not been, uh, had not previously been fed to any livestock on the big island. But the latest development in this potential Limukohu industry is the debut of Hawaii Island Goat Dairy Farm, sort of a new Limu fed slash low emissions <laughs> goat cheese. It sounds like a silly small thing, but it really is a tangible end result for the consumer who wants to enjoy food that uh, with a low carbon footprint. And Sawin sees Hawaii as a potential exporter. Think about that of brominata. It grows year-round here in Hawaii. It's relatively light and so perfect for shipping. And it's carbon-friendly. Uh, but Connor McCabe, a PhD student at UC Davis who's been working with Blue Ocean Barns over the last year or so to verify the scientific claims that are being made about Limu Kohu, says there are still a few more question he, questions he wants answered before we start feeding Limu Kohu to a bunch of animals. Um, how does it affect long-term methane emissions? Do we still see these long-term reductions? You know, we, we, we tested this for a two-month period and it had great success there, so thinking about how we do it long term, um, and you know, thinking about um, will it affect um, the end product as well, consumer taste, consumer preference as well, because we want want to think about from from the beginning of the food chain to the end of it um, before we're going to implement a solution. So McCabe says, with time, um, these pieces may come together, and it may very well be that this is where it all started, and Hawaii becomes that center of methane emissions reduction. Uh, but we do know that Blue Ocean Barnes, and I believe it was Symbrosia, the other uh, company you had spoken to, did receive grants of uh, heavy investments into this to really scale up and, and figure out if there is an industry that could be built there. Yeah, it's very exciting. I mean, you know, to talk to Joan, and, and they have great plans. They were already in talks with the cattle industry in California and other places around right. the globe, really, just because the potential is uh, really 
fantastic. And everybody's looking for that solution, right? And so this is just like another sort of product of this of this industry that could be something. We'll see what uh, other sort of uh, small dairy producers maybe take on uh, putting limukohu into into their diets for the ruminants. But uh, un- I, I guess until then, you can try the goat cheese and see if it really does, you know, hold uh, holds uh, that goat, original goat cheese flavor. Yeah, or if it's fishy, right? <laughs> A little limu. <laughs> Yeah, it, it, it's interesting. It, I, I always wondered how the goats and the cows, you know, liked it, and it, it seems to be okay. You know? They seemed fine. I joined them, uh, the goats at the Big Island uh, Dairy Farm, <laughs> for feeding time, and they were very happy to have uh, <laughs> feed with Limuko. All right, and, and so uh, you think the goat cheese is is pretty good, then, huh? <laughs> I do, I do. But for anybody, anybody uh, out there doubting me, go and check it out yourself. Okay, do your own taste test. <laughs> Thank you so much, Kuvei. That was HPR's Kuve Hiraishi talking with us about goats and seaweed. Check out the story at hawaiipublicradio.org. Well, we have to go now. We are out of time, but up tomorrow, what's behind a plan to put in a reservation system at Ho'umalahia Park? Got a story you'd like to share? Leave your feedback on our talkback line, 808-792-8217, or email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Find our archive shows online by searching for the Conversation Podcast on Spotify and Apple. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of The Conversation.